welcome to A Cry for Kelp with me, Nick Woodens, where I interview the movers and shakers of the seaweed industry. Today on the pod, I have Alex Adrian, the Agriculture Operations Manager for the Crown Estate in Scotland. The Crown Estate in Scotland are tasked with managing most of the seabed of Scotland, as well as agriculture and forestry land. So they're the guys you go to if you wanted to start a seaweed farm there. Alex has a BSc in Zoology from Bangor University and an MSc in Applied Fish Biology from Plymouth and over 30 years of experience in the aquaculture world, starting his career at Panfish and moving to Crown Estate, Scotland in 2007. In his current role, he manages leasing policy and administration for finfish, shellfish and seaweed cultivation, as well as the licensing of wild seaweed harvesting in Scotland. If that wasn't enough, he also commissions and supports agricultural research, so a massive remit that puts Alex at the nexus of government, regulatory agencies and businesses, making him a crucial part of the burgeoning Scottish seaweed industry. If you're thinking about getting into seaweed farming, even if it's not in Scotland itself, you'll need to listen to what Alex has to say. It was a really good conversation. He has a great perspective on what the industry needs to do to grow. The keen aired amongst you may detect a difference in tone in some parts of the recording. That was due to some challenges that we had with our microphones. But everything that Alex had to say comes across loud and clear. So let's dive in. Hello, Alex. Hello. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak with me today. I want to dive right in because time is short and ask you about your journey. What made you get into aquaculture in the first place? I think when I got into aquaculture, it was back in the 80s. Um, it was very new, certainly as far as I was concerned. And I think generally you had salmon farming just starting out. I'm talking about the context of what was happening in the UK compared to what was happening elsewhere where we know aquaculture has been going for a long time. But it was just the excitement of joining a new industry. I've always been interested in the sea. Um, I've always been interested in animals and zoology. And uh, it just opened up a, a new avenue, I think. Um, there was nothing else that particularly grabbed me at the time. And um, looking around, uh, particularly where aquaculture is, uh, is, is, is undertaken, uh, you know, some of the most beautiful coastlines in the world, it seemed to tick a lot of boxes for me. So um, I, I plunged in, really. Um, that was as bad as, as, as far as it went. It was something new, somewhere nice to be. And um, I, was, I was ready to give it a go. Firstly, to panfish. Was it first to panfish that you... It, it was Panfish, yes. It was a previous iteration of Panfish. It was called Lighthouse of Scotland at the time, but because of the generally sort of consolidating nature of the salmon industry, it went through several name changes, albeit um, the company itself and the people who were around me didn't change as many times as the actual name did. I see, I see. Any big highlights about it, aquaculture as an industry rather than, um, you know, just your experience itself? What is it that makes it such a special industry, do you think? It was tying up, I think, what we were doing on the farming side, which was very exploratory. It was it was very new. We, in in, in many cases, sort of sailed by the seat of our pants with regards to just how things were going to turn out at the end of a long production cycle, and having that align with um, established uh, markets, um, you know, and, and getting your 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 farming side, which was all a little bit haphazard sometimes and a little bit um, subject to the Prevails of weather and other issues, and how that had to translate into firm orders, consistent deliveries, consistent quality. How do you turn what was a fairly novel and new and exploratory farming system into a product that uh, a customer could, you know, consistently have confidence in its quality and its delivery? And that was probably one of the big learning curves. And you know, when you're up on the west coast of Scotland, you're re fairly remote from most things. And people down in London or people in any of the major cities 
who were your main customers or even abroad, um, you had to link their requirements, their perceptions of what they were getting to the kind of environment and the kind of conditions you were working in. I think that was probably one of the biggest learning curves is turning what is a quite an exciting farming job into the fact that, you know, the recognition that you're still producing a product and people who are interested in that product want to see it consistently realized, both in terms of getting it and what they get. Oh, that's fascinating. Then you moved off to Crown Estates, Scotland. Um, was that a you know simple transition or was that changing quite a lot of what you did? Were you poached come gamekeeper? I, I probably was. I've I've stayed with aquaculture, um, having moved to it, it was the Crown Estate at the time. We've since been devolved, as you say, to, to Crown Estate Scotland, where everything you deal with now is, is up in Scotland. Um, I dealt with the Crown Estate um, for a while, uh, for quite a while, in fact, while I was at Crown simply because I dealt with a lot of the self-site development issues. The Crown Estate was the regulator at that time. And therefore, I had a, a, I knew a lot of people who worked at the Crown Estate. I was familiar with them. I admired the way they went about um, their regulatory and their managing role. And um, I've always thought that they were the, uh, the sort of the seabed managers. They, they were the... Um, had that holistic overview of what happened in the marine environment and they took you know the, the way they took matters into account in relation to the uh both their obligations for for providing opportunities for the industry but at the same time protecting other stakeholders i thought they they hit a, a good balance it was moving into a different aspect of aquaculture if you know what i mean but not, not as much of, of, of a career change certainly for me as, as as possibly it appears you know i think i just moved into a different branch of the aquaculture um environment if you like rather than getting out to the aquaculture something else completely different i see and you've been there 10 years now what has been the big changes that have taken place on your watch i think the biggest one most of the industries that i've dealt with and they they're all within the aquaculture sectors so of fish development and seaweed they've all developed to to a greater or lesser extent and uh you know we know fish have done has done very well um shellfish is is is, is probably on a more steady course if you like and seaweed are the new guys on the block what is more interesting is the way that they have interacted with other people in the marine environment and particularly the public or, or the communities who live on the coast. I would say when I joined the Crown Estate, people were very much concerned with what they could see, you know, if you like the stuff on top, above the water. Now, increasingly, um, people are very concerned with what goes on underneath the water. You know, we've had pro we've had programs like Blue Planet, um, we have the internet, obviously, and a huge amount of information. There's a lot more interest. We've seen the growth of marine leisure tourism, uh, increasing. Um, you know, people want to dive and, and dive for you know in order to to look at and enjoy um, marine habitats and 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 marine features. And people now are increasingly aware of what's going on, and they are quite. Um, concerned that, be it aquaculture or be it anything else that's conducted in the marine environment, it is undertaken by people who are responsible and who appreciate um, just what the marine environment offers more widely in addition to whatever they're using it for in terms of their commercial interests. So I would say it is, you know, it can be summarised, if you like, as the growth of social licence for people who use the marine environment. It was something that was very rarely mentioned previously. Now it is it is almost a priority feature if you're going to change it. And that's quite encouraging. Um, change then it certainly makes me feel good those that is becoming a valuable part of what everybody does um so can you give us a sort of a, a headlines on what really crown estate scotland's mission is in general and and then also how it relates to seaweed cultivation for our listeners they might not be fully aware yes i mean the the, the formal remit of crown estate scotland is is to 
is to maintain and enhance the value of the marine estate or the estate of, of the crown. And that, that estate, if you like, is all the, 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 the properties and the heritable properties and the rights that um, belong to the crown. And by the crown, I mean, in effect, um, the, the monarch is head of state. So they're in effect public property, they're public assets. And so Crown State Scotland um, manages those public assets. And in my particular role, um, one of those assets is the territorial seabed out to 12 nautical miles in parts of the foreshore. And therefore, it is managing, maintaining and enhancing the value of that territorial seabed. Now, that in large part means that we are encouraging uh, of uh, sustainable development and that extends from aquaculture through offshore renewables, offshore wind, to marine leisure tourism, marine recreational sailing, uh, and coastal infrastructure. But at the same time, while we're doing that, we have an obligation to do it in a way that um, enhances and enables community well-being, um, helps social regeneration, um, looks to uh, um, provide environmental benefit, or certainly take environmental benefit into account. So we have quite a broad remit it, and, and you could call it stewardship, if you like. You know, it is it is it is responsible management of of a, of a valuable public asset. And so, while we've got to make it um, return, make a return to the public purse for those people who use it, certainly for commercial purposes, we've got to make sure that that's done uh, in in a manner that that doesn't um, create any lasting damage or lasting implications for the communities or others who may use it, including natural heritage, you know, natural heritage um, features. Well, I think that that's really interesting because I was going. I wanted to jump onto something that you said at the beginning, but but that's almost too good a segue into my next question. So I'll, I'll come back to what I was going to ask uh, later. But you know, I mean, I think you and I would agree that seaweed has got this, you know vast potential, and we do need to not not necessarily lower the barriers. We do need to you know give people a chance to get into the industry in order for us to for it to be fully realised, the potential to be realised. But we we have to do it without compromising the health of the marine ecosystem. Um, what what are the how do you do it? Like what is how does it work for you guys to to make sure that that does happen? I think the first thing for us, I mean, the, the two the, the two aspects to our work. I mean, one because we are a uh, in effect an estate manager, and we have to turn it to account. We we have a, a financial interest, and, and and that financial financial interest extends to to raising money for the public first. Um, from, from people who use that environment. And therefore, we can't always necessarily be the objective scrutineers of whether something is necessarily suitable or acceptable or appropriate in a particular place. And that, that falls to regulators who are tasked with that. So, you know, you have local planning authorities, you have the likes of the Environmental Protection Agency, Marine, Marine Scotland's uh, licensing operations team. So, um, you know, Anybody who does anything on, 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 on the territorial seabed must first always secure the, the consents from, from bodies like those. Right. But in addition to that, so what we look at is the provenance of the tenant. So we want to know that they can do what they, they say they're going to do. So do, do they have the necessary skills? Do they have the necessary ability? Do they have you know, business history? Um, to make sure that you know, they, 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 they are, they're properly equipped to, to, to carry out, if we look into seaweed farming, um, an operation that, that, they will, that will produce cultivated seaweed. Do they have the necessary resources? So the, and the key thing behind this is that it confers confidence um, when people have skills and ability and resource. It offers us the confidence and hopefully other stakeholders the confidence that they can do what they say they are going to do. Now, that will include all the measures that will be to mitigate any potential effects. So it's not just about conducting the business. It is also about taking appropriate care. Now, that may relate to 
um, the unintended release of plastics into the environment. It may relate to ensuring that there are um, adequate measures in place to protect wildlife that may uh, aggregate around their farms, you know, entanglement or um, any un 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 uncontrolled releases. So it, it is all about competence. What we're looking for, looking to see is competence. Um, and that goes across the scope of whatever the operation might involve. So it's both business, but being a responsible tenant of that shared public marine resource. And, it, you know, if you're usually competent at the one, it gives confidence that you're going to be competent and you have the ability and the resource to carry out and be competent in the others. Got it. That makes, you know, lots of sense. Um, what would be your advice to a, to a potential seaweed farmer about coming up to Scotland? What would you like to see beyond just, you know, that you're qualified? Is it, um, you know, how much is it, is it the plan for post the seaweed, you know, the, the growing and the harvesting and and how much of it is the harvesting? Because surely it, it sort of matters to the to the local environment and sorry, the local communities as well, what you're going to do with the seaweed when it's when it's harvested, or do you not really touch that at all? No, that, that's 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 a key feature. And you know, our advice to any seaweed prospective seaweed farmer is have a very clear idea of what the business is that you're getting involved in, not just the farming. Yeah. Um, seaweed yeah. is a very seasonal and highly perishable uh, product. You need to know where it's going pretty much before you start seeding it into the water. And, you know, we see the seaweed farming business as the whole supply chain. So not just the point at which, you know, it's put into the water and taken out of the water again. It's what happens to it after that. And that may take the form of primary processing, like drying or freezing or, or some other form of um, preservation. And then, you know, on, it's onward use and a secondary use in whatever market it's going to. And that could be animal feed. It could be human food. It may be emerging biotech businesses. It is, it is it's having very clear sight of that. And I think it's even more important for a seaweed farmer than, for example, other aquaculture sectors like shellfish and, and finfish, where you have established what you might call commodity markets. You know, if you grow some mussels where you grow salmon, arguably you can set up a store on the quayside and you can wait for passing footfall. That's not how it's going to work with seaweed. It's not how it works at the moment. That seaweed needs to have a home to go to, you know, or, as I say, almost before you put it into the water. The other thing I think we need to, you know, a seaweed farmer needs to be aware of is just how he's going to coexist and interact with other marine users. And this is probably one of the most important features of any marine development now. Uh, the sea is becoming increasingly busy, particularly inshore. And all the likes of capture fisheries or, or recreational sailors, you know, they look with some alarm and concern at the, the growth of the aquaculture industry alongside offshore renewables. Um, you have... Um, marine protected areas and you know prospective highly marine highly protected marine areas coming about and you know it's referred to as the marine squeeze so how do you get on with your neighbors in that increasingly um congested space and therefore it is not simply about um you know drawing lines and someone being one side or someone being the other it's about the measures you can undertake to coexist so for example what we would look to look for seaweed farmers to to address is how do they set their farm up that might allow, for example, static gear fishermen to, to fish close by or even say between lines if that were possible? Um, what are they going to do to minimize navigation risks? What are they going to do to make sure that there's no um, you know, unacceptable uh, visual immunity um, aspect? So it is about not just your own business. You are working in a shared space. You are working in, a, in an area where a lot of people depend on the resource. You've got to coexist benignly and hopefully even beneficially alongside those other interests. 
Yeah, that makes obviously even more sense. But I, I wonder that you bring out two really interesting things. Obviously, firstly, the products. You know, from your perspective and what you're looking at at the market. You know, you, which product do you think has got the 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 potential to make a market inflection to sort of really really spike the growth of the industry in general? From our perspective, or from my perspective, certainly, I think it is biotechnology. I, right. I think seaweed has the potential to replace a lot of raw materials that are currently used for things like packaging and um, perhaps in, in, in pharmaceuticals or, 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 or things like that. You know, traditionally, seaweed has always gone into a human food market. Um, and that will continue to grow, hopefully. I think there is also scope for the animal feed market as well and replacing um, some of the carbohydrates that, and even proteins that are used for, for animal feed. You know, everybody's aware of, of problems relating to land use, water use, fertilization uh, yeah. soils. But the biotech, I think, is the one where you have greater scope for diversity, you have greater scope for adding value, and just building a seaweed-based um, product portfolio in, in a Scottish economy or in a UK economy. You know, I, I think this is, is something that uh, the UK and Scotland need to take heed of because there are a lot of other countries around the world who are looking at this um, and, and taking steps to try and, and set something up. And we have a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs who are keen to set this up and they should be enabled and encouraged as much as we are encouraging the seaweed farmers, if you know what I mean. The whole thing could be part of a, of a seaweed-based industry. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I keep saying it makes sense because you're talking a lot of sense, Alex. Um, I wanted to talk about bioremediation. It's something that I sort of slowly become aware of with the value that seaweed has, uh, not just as, uh, as a carbon sink, but actually cleaning waterways and stuff like that. Is there what data do we have, and, and or where do we get data for? If you're a seaweed farmer and you want to say, look, not only am I going to grow this this this, this great seaweed, it's going to go to this great biotech uh, company. Um, but also um, uh, this will clean up waterways. Is that something that you know to be true and you're happy to make base, you know, uh, sign off applications based on it? Or I just love your perspective on remediation. Yes, I, I, we wouldn't see it as a, uh, as a as a primary market initially. I certainly think it's one of it's, you know one of those ecosystem services that that needs to be recognised um, you know, by by developers and by communities as well as by the farmers themselves. I think there's. There's increasing research looking at this. I think we all know, you know, CBD grows by by virtue of the nutrients it, it, can, it can secure, and, and and those nutrients all come, you know, from from the waters in which it's grown in large part, um, and therefore it is it, it is a significant um, a significant potential for nutrient mitigation. Um, in addition to that, seaweed farms, any sort of farm, I suppose, see, you know, acts as, as, as an aggregate source of, of aggregation for other species. So there is scope for uh, enhancing um, biodiversity. And where seaweed farms may develop over ground that has previously been subject to um, bottom, you know, bottom fishing gear, then there's there's scope for recovery of the benthos as well. So there is uh, seaweed alongside bivalve, bivalve cultivation, you know, mussels and then oysters, is what we call restorative, restorative aquaculture. You know, and it's, it's very much aligned with regenerative agriculture, if you like. It is a, it is the activity that can start to restore and deliver positive positive environmental effects. That is a key selling point for aquaculture for, for seaweed aquaculture. I would caution to say that it it is not necessarily or not yet uh, a reason uh, for for setting up a business because you still have to earn money and the money is earned by selling harvest if you know what I mean. But in time, we would like to see schemes that in the terrestrial environment are looking at payment for ecosystem services 
Why can't that be transferred to the green environment? And certainly, why can't that be transferred to glyphosate farming and biovail farming? So there is definitely what I would say two markets, two potential markets here for farm seaweed. There is what is happening while it's in the water and all those um, positive ben environmental benefits, those ecosystem service, services that, is being, uh, that are being delivered while it is being grown, nutrient mitigation, biodiversity enhancement, and then you've got the, the, you know, the economics of what happens to it once it's harvested and sold. So it has a huge amount of scope for delivering you know, a, an overall value package as far as we're concerned. And, and we're keen that people are, are aware of that. And we're quite keen that people are starting to look at that from research and from a sort of more applied research perspective as well. And I suppose we'll need we'll need to get some pretty solid data on that sort of stuff. Is anybody you know that that that, that is leaning into the data capture of that those bio those those ecosystem services bits? Nothing. Specific. I mean, you have organisations like the Scottish Association for Marine Science, SAMS, up in Oban, and there are a number of universities around Scotland and the wider UK who have you know, departments of oceanography or marine science that, that are looking at things like this. It will be important to quantify these. I mean, you're right. We, you know, it, it's not enough to simply talk about them and, and admire from a distance. Yeah. We need to be able to quantify these things. Now, there are certain measures that the Scottish Environmental Protection Agency, for example, will use to measure, um, you know, impacts in in various marine um, environments from things like um, outfall pipes or, or, or you know, salmon farms who have fed aquaculture where you do get you know, organic enrichment and things like that. So you have certain metrics that we know about already that can measure the quality or the health of the benthos or indices that can measure faunal biodiversity. Those can be used now, if you like, to measure um, those kind of, uh, you know, what is happening around seaweed farms as well. But around, it's not, again, you know, having the metrics to hand, you need to put them within a framework of how they will be measured, who will measure them, how the uh, information will be verified and how it will be delivered. So, you know, it's, it, you need the science. You then need to sort of, once you've come up with metrics and you've been able to quantify it, that's the second step. And then you've got to create the framework in which that information is delivered for wider public benefit or regulatory yeah. benefit or both. Yeah, and um, and I really like that framework in general um, that uh, you're using for just saying you know there's there's what happens in the water and there's what happens out of the water. And it's a nice way to look at this. It's a nice way for me to move forward with the podcast. Actually, I think I'm going to sort of focus on those two separate elements um, and bring them together towards the end. I'd like to zoom out though now and move to, just to take a look at take your perspective on blue growth and your kind of predictions for the next ten years of the seaweed industry, both in Scotland and the UK, and then you know what you see is happening around the world. And I'd love to get your perspective. You know, coming from the aquaculture industry initially. Anyway, uh, you know, what have we learned from what we learned not to do in the salmon from the salmon industry and other agriculture industries that we could sort of, you know, you know start start to fresh with with the with the seaweed industry? Do you think? I think the key thing is 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 is, is to, to mention the social license that I brought up earlier. Yeah, and the fact that. Anyone who is 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 working in the sea, but particularly things like aquaculture, where you may be inshore, and also you may be working alongside the the likes of captured fisheries and recreational, other recreational, tourism or, or, or sailing, you need to be um, benignly coexisting with those interests and have their endorsement, if you like, because for an industry like seaweed to to uh, to prosper. Um, and and to have a, an associated seaweed products industry, wherever it may be based, prosper at the same as well. 
scale is going to be very important. And you are not going to, we are not going to get the industry developing the necessary scale. And by scale, I mean, you know, probably extending possibly into the hundreds of thousands of tons being harvested every year without that being an ex- seen as an acceptable way to use the marine environment, an acceptable way to treat the marine environment um, by any number of interested parties. And increasingly now, again, with social media, um, you know, it is, it is very easy. We have seen with the salmon farming industry for campaigning groups to get very active, to get, um, to get a, a voice uh, and a voice that is acknowledged and, and heard by, by an increasingly sort of wide audience, political audience and regulatory audience. Seaweed needs to recognise that that same voice will be will be there for them, and it needs to convey the right messages. And therefore, uh, it's important that they are transparent, they are open, and they're very clear about what they're going to do. And as I you know, also alluded to earlier, ensuring that they are seen to be making every every effort as a new player coming into the environment to be uh, you know man- recognising the importance of coexistence with people already there. And by that, I mean the sort of more traditional uses, the, the environment like fishing and, and, and navigation. So I think it, it is proceeding with society's blessing, I would say, is probably the key thing. And, and that may sound a trite term, but I think increasingly now, it's far more important than it was, say, 10 years ago now. You know, people do now want to know what's going on and that people are behaving in, in what they feel is an acceptable way. Yeah. Um, well, it almost sounds like uh, the way that the, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the B Corp model, uh, the four benefit corporations, where, where they've got sort of, you know, uh, a charter where they're going to do certain things the right way. And everybody, when you see that B Corp badge these days on, on, on the big brands like Patagonia, and uh, I think Ben and Jerry's is one too, you, you just know that those guys are, are good guys, or you certainly have more faith that they're good guys and they're not doing bad stuff to the environment. I think that's, we need the kind of same thing happening and the, the same image to be projected about the seaweed industry. Exactly. And, and even from an investment point of view, increasingly investors now look at the, you know, the ESG, the environment, the social and the governance um, metrics of, of any particular company they may be interested in. And those are important um, from, you know, simply from getting a business going or, and, and having a business continue and continue to grow. And you know, it's having those at the forefront of any development plan. Yeah, indeed. What, um, so with that in mind, what do you think, you know, if it's, let's say that does happen, what do you think that the seaweeds industry is going to look like uh, in Scotland? I'd love to know your perspective in Scotland in 10 years' time and then extrapolate that out to sort of the UK and the rest of the world. I think it will probably be a combination of some of the smaller farms that we are seeing develop now. There's a lot of coastal community interest in in developing seaweed farms, and and often for for entirely noble reasons with regard to the benefits that I spoke of earlier that you know that can accrue while while seaweed is growing in the water, but also to provide you know an added economic um, arrow to the quiver, if you like, of, of of what's going on, and that may be now they may, for example, simply um, grow seaweed for for very local circular economy. Um, type setup. So they may feed into um, local hedging businesses or local um, pharmaceutical businesses, you know, soap making and things like that. Or they may, you know, through cooperatives feed into larger markets, slightly more distant markets. So I think there's, there will always be a role for these, you know, the sort of smaller development that is those community-based, um, community interest company type um, developments as well. At the same time, that is not probably going to deliver the scale that, for example, Scotland or the UK would need if it is going to develop its own homegrown business that is based on raw materials that we can deliver. And therefore, we will see large developments, and they may well be further offshore. There is no reason why they shouldn't be. 
Yeah. Uh, I think we'll see a combination of the two. There, there are other examples of attractive culture on the south coast through Delphi uh, at the moment, where you have uh, 15 square kilometers in three and six miles off the coast in Lyme Bay. There's no reason that can't be replicated in other parts of the UK, but you need to have what I would call a sympathetic development model. And you know, coming back to coexisting with fishing and navigation, and uh, and also making sure that you know the environmental um, mitigation is as good as it can be. And therefore, I think some of the technology may change in the way that seaweed is grown. We may not go, we, we may not follow the model at the moment, for example, of using you know suspended lines in the water in, in in much the way that shellfish are grown. For example, we may move to things like single point moorings, where in effect, um, seeded um, seaweed. Um, platforms or whatever whatever else the seaweed is grown on are simply attached to single point moorings out of the sea and a lot of the work may be done either on boats that service those moorings or boats may simply pick up the, the grown seaweed and take it ashore to get stripped off the various carriers and things like that. So the, it, seaweed is interesting in, in that it may not necessarily follow the type of logistics that, that aquaculture as we know it elsewhere follows. It may have to work out its own way of doing it in order to take advantage of the space and the offshore opportunity that's out there. That's really interesting. I have not had that in, in the previous episodes that I've had. I've not had that perspective and, and thought about that, 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 that that's what could change over the next 10 years. And it's, that's really exciting. Um, I, I, it leads me into my question that I ask a lot of people, um, which is what are the gaps in the market that you see right now um, that would help the industry and make specifically your life easier as a, as a policy maker, as a policy director, as it were? Uh, is there anything out there that you wish somebody had come up with? A, I don't know, a way of data collection or something? Um, less data collection. I think at the moment, the, the, the key thing is, is probably what, what you call primary processing. Yeah. Um, what, at the moment, the danger is that all the seaweed that is grown in Scotland will come out of the water probably between April and June. And it'll need a home to go to fairly quickly after that. What we need to be able to do is to process that seaweed as soon as it comes out of the water um, and put it into a, a form that can um, allow it to be stored allow it to be delivered over over time uh, and and that's important for cash flow as as well as for for supply and um, in order to just if you like reduce pressure on the supply chain to to do something at the moment we we don't want a situation where all the risk sits with the farmer we need to have a recognized processing phase and that may be one particular process that can serve diverse markets or it may mean a suite of Processing options that, that you know that offer opportunity to bespoke markets, but we need to fill in the gaps in the supply chain to smooth out the risks, um, to, to maximise opportunity. Because any businesses that is relying on seaweed won't want simply to run between April and June; they'll want a year-round supply. And how do we even that all out? How do we spread it out? So I think a lot of it is still to do with the logistics and to the and and, and the processes associated with logistics. Which means that we're still a fairly at a fairly early stage in in how those in, you know in, in the development of the industry, um, and that's where the focus is right now. I think once we've cracked that, and you are looking at um, something that can affect in effect supply uh, a, a business that relies on seabird twelve months of the year, even though it may be based on a highly seasonal crop, then we're getting into what you might call a, a much more mature and a much more um, you know something more stable. Yeah, so. Again, it's logistics and crucially processing that are going to be key to unlocking the potential for this industry. 
Well, thank you very much for this, Alex. This has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time. And I really hope we can get you onto the pod later on when we do start to see some of these solutions emerge, because it would be great to get your perspective. But thank you very much for taking the time today. No, John, it's been a pleasure. Hello, John.